to this psalm that um, as we look at the implications and, Lord, possible interpretations, Lord, we want to make application tonight. We are living in very interesting days. They are days where, as Paul would tell Timothy, that they are perilous times. We see that there's a a moving further away from you uh, in our nation and worldwide. There is a moving away from you and truth, and Lord, so we desire that, that right now that truth be given to us to help us to stand strong in the days in which we're living in. But also we desire to have wisdom and discernment. And Lord, just as Jesus said that we are to be wise and faithful and looking for the master's return and be wise and faithful in the seasons and the times that we're in presently, I pray that tonight would stir our hearts, that this is also an exciting time for us as Christians to be living, to be able to be light, to be ones that we see the signs all around us that point to the soon return of Jesus Christ, that we know that you will be faithful to bring your promises to pass. And Lord, we have such a wonderful future. And I pray that our hearts would be stirred to the message that we have to give to others, that Jesus Christ is our salvation. There is none other. That he will come and rule and reign on this earth. And that he is the one that has provided forgiveness and eternal life to all who come to him and believe on him. And Lord, may we just be ones that we realize that this world is not our hope, but we would redeem the time. And redeem the time that we have to be able to be a light, to be a witness, and Lord, to give truth, to serve you, Lord, to, to just continue to be a witness in the reality of Jesus that lives inside of us. So, Lord, tonight I pray that we would be right now attentive and that, Lord, we would be excited about your word declared to us. Work it in our hearts and what you want to accomplish. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Psalm 83 is the psalm of Asaph, and it's interesting because we've talked about Asaph before. And Asaph is... Uh, was the worship leader under David when David was getting ready to prepare for all the priests and the Levites. Uh, worship was very much an important part of what he was preparing for the temple when Solomon would come along and, and build the first temple. So Asaph was the worship leader under David. We know that David was one that worship was very important to him and a very important part of his life, and he desired to make it very much an important part of temple worship. So he got Asaph, a worship leader, and his brother Heman, and, and Jeduthun was another worship leader that we see that are mentioned that were worship leaders under the reign of David. In Asaph, it's interesting, as we know that he would live in that time period with David, about 1000 B.C., that some of these psalms are penned by Asaph. And it's interesting in that, that some of the psalms, particularly in book three that we have looked at, that many of these psalms are dealing with Jerusalem. They're dealing with the temple and how destruction came to Jerusalem by the hands of the Babylonians in 586 B.C. Asaph in Psalm 74 penned that uh, psalm and talked about how the temple was defiled and there was death and devastation that took place. And that's exactly what happened when the Babylonians came in and leveled Jerusalem and the magnificent temple that Solomon had built. But also we know that there's other psalms that have been written concerning that, you know, time that the Assyrians in 705 B.C. came to Jerusalem and surrounded Jerusalem, but God delivered them. So book three deals a lot with Israel and with uh, the enemies coming against them, deals with the temple, the Babylonians, the Assyrians. And Asaph penning this, we were talking about particularly in Psalm 74, Asaph, if he lived to be around 1000 BC, here he's writing in Psalm 74 about the destruction of the temple and the destruction of the temple in 586 BC. That's 400 years later. How could Asaph write about that? And so many scholars will tell you and me that it was probably a descendant of Asaph that wrote that Psalm in Psalm 74. But here's something interesting to think about is that Asaph, as we know from Scripture, that Second Chronicles chapter 29, verse 30 tells us, that Asaph was not only a worship leader, 
but he was a seer. He was a prophet. A seer in the Old Testament is another name for prophet. And I find that fascinating because as we look at this psalm, we're going to go through it. We're going to look at the implications of it as this large confederation of nations are coming against Israel to destroy Israel. And as you read commentators, as you look at scholars that particularly study end-time prophecy, they're all over the board of exactly what does Psalm 83 mean to you and to me. Is it just a lament that some scholars say that it is? And as we read it, it is a lament, but there are others that say that, no, it has prophetic significance. There are some that are going to say that it has already been fulfilled in our lifetime, and we'll discuss that. But others are saying, no, it has future implications. And so as we go through this, we're going to talk about four interpretations that scholars and Bible interpreters are coming up with, and I think that you'll find it to be very, very fascinating. Sometimes people here uh, at, you know, Calvary Chapel, or they'll say about Calvary Chapel, is you guys like to talk about prophecy. Well, we do, because we go through the Scriptures chapter by chapter and verse by verse from Genesis to Revelation. And as you do, you got to talk about prophecy. And we love the prophetic word here at Calvary Chapel Greeley because it is included in the canon of Scripture. And I believe that the Lord, especially in the day in which we're living in, would have us to be wise and discerning about the days in which we're living in. And it is interesting to me and somewhat uh, kind of troubling to me in some ways that in the church at large that there is a distancing from end-time prophecy in the importance of it. A lot of churches don't talk about end-time prophecy. There have been pastors that have told me personally that it's not of priority. It isn't important. It just causes confusion and weary, and we can't really understand it, and I can't further disagree with that. You know, we're coming up on the Christmas season here in a few weeks. We're going to be entering into November. I'm one. I'd like to, to think about Thanksgiving first. But you can't help but go into the stores and you already see the Christmas lights up and and the Christmas commercials that are going to be coming on. So we're going to be entering into the Christmas season. And I love the Christmas season because I love the Christmas story. And the Christmas story is such a magnificent story, the birth of Jesus and, and how he, Jesus, came born of the babe of Bethlehem. And it's such a magnificent story. But part of that story, as you know, also recorded in Matthew's narrative in chapter 2, talks about the wise men. And the wise men, the magi that came from the east, they came after the birth of Jesus. They came looking for the new king of Israel. And, of course, in the Christmas scenes, we have the three wise men with the three gifts. We know that they brought three gifts, myrrh, frankincense, and, and um, whatever, and <laughs> fill in the blanks, thank you. <laughs> gold, yeah, I can't forget the gold. Um, but they brought those three gifts. So it makes a nice picture of three you know, wise men coming across the desert carrying these three gifts. So we don't know how many magi wise men that came um, because it says wise men, plural, could have been two, but... Probably it was a fairly large contingency of them, and I'll tell you why. Because they got the attention of Herod the Great. And he's wondering, why are these guys traveling through my nation, through my area that I'm ruling over? And Herod the Great was a very paranoid man, so he asked to see these guys. And it's like, why are you guys here? And they said, because we come to worship the new king of Israel. And when Herod the Great heard that, he was very troubled, it says in Matthew chapter 2, by that. And then Jerusalem was troubled. Why was Jerusalem troubled? Because if Herod the Great was troubled, something bad was going to happen. He was a very paranoid man that wasn't afraid to to, uh, give the order to put people to death. And that's exactly what he did, didn't he? He gave the order that the male children two years and under would be put to death in Bethlehem. Why? Because he would call for the religious leaders. As he called for the religious leaders, he said, okay, what does your prophecy say about this Messiah that, of yours that's supposed to you know, come on the scene? Where is he going to be born? And they said, of course, Micah chapter 5, verse 2, he's going to be born in Bethlehem. Just right down the street here, 10 miles. And this is what intrigues me. Those magis that came from the east, probably all the teachings that came down through Daniel for those 500 years, the school of prophecy of Daniel. Hey, this is when Messiah the prince is going to come, Daniel chapter 9. 
and they were looking for that sign. And here are these magis, these Gentiles that would travel hundreds of miles across the desert, and they said, we're here because we know that the king of Israel has been born. We've seen his star. We know the prophecies that have been taught to us through the centuries by Daniel who came from this very city, Jerusalem, from Judah. And we're here to worship him. And what an effort it must have been for them to come across that high, dusty, deserty ground to come and worship the Lord. The religious leaders, hey, he's supposed to be born in Bethlehem right down the street. The religious leaders that had the prophecies as well. And there is no indication that they had any interest to go and check it out. Isn't that intriguing? You see, I think today there's somewhat of that mentality of we know the times and seasons that we're in. And we know that the scripture is telling you and me that we are in the last days because we've seen the rebirth of Israel. We see the pieces of the puzzle as you study the prophetic scenario that are coming together. And remember that in Daniel chapter 12, as we studied on New Year's Eve in our prophecy update last year, that Daniel was told that in the last days that knowledge is going to increase. And as he says that knowledge is going to increase, it doesn't just mean talking about technology and and you know, uh, you know, knowledge of uh, medical advances and, and, and all the other things that, of course, knowledge has increased. But it's talking about Bible prophecy, that as we get closer to the return of the Lord and as we read the Bible and as we look at these prophecies, we can't know every single piece of the puzzle, but we start to see the picture coming together. And Jesus said that when you begin to see these things come to pass, Look up and rejoice, for your redemption draws near. And Jesus would say that the coming of the Son of Man is like a thief in the night. I'm going to come suddenly. I believe he's talking about the rapture of the church because he comes at an hour that we do not know. So you make sure that you're the wise and faithful servant that's looking for the Master's return. And in the New Testament, you see in the epistles that in every epistle that there's a mention of the return of the Lord, that you be watching, that you wait for his son in heaven, as Paul wrote to the church at Thessalonica, that you know the times and seasons that are at hand. He also wrote to them. He would say to them in other places, looking for the blessed hope of the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. So the Lord can come for us at any time, I believe, in what is called the rapture of the church. And we don't know when that's going to happen. We don't know the day or the hour. But we know that it could be at any time. And as we are rushing towards even closer to the return of the Lord, we're starting to see the birth pangs that Jesus talked about, that the signs are like birth pangs, that a woman that's going to give labor to a child, the birth pangs she experiences when she goes into labor, that they become more frequent and more intense as she gets closer to delivering that baby. And just as the end time events that are like birth pangs, that those signs are going to be more frequent and more intense. And soon there's going to be the birth of the rapture of the church and then the tribulation period and then the second coming of Jesus Christ. Jesus rebuked those religious leaders. And he said, you can discern the, com the weather, but you are not discerning of the coming of the Son of Man. So I just want to reiterate the reason we love to talk about prophecy here at Calvary Chapel Greeley. Number one is a part of the canon of Scripture as we go through Scripture and as we go through it just as we find ourselves in Psalm 83 tonight that we're going to talk about prophecy. And then also we're to be wise and discerning in the days in which we're living in. And it has an effect on how we live. You see, there are those who will say, oh, it isn't important. You know, you guys that are looking for the rapture of the church to stick your head in the sand and um, don't want to face reality. That's not the heart of Scripture, folks, and don't buy into that. Jesus commanded us to be watching and waiting. And John, in his epistle, he would say that he who has this hope, what hope? To see the Lord purifies himself. And if I am living every day with the possibility, don't know, but it could be, just might be, the one that I love who died for me, can come back for me and can come back for us. We're going to have that urgency to want to live for him. 
and purity is going to be worked into our lives. So it affects the way that we think and the way that we live and keeping eternity and, uh, and perspectives before us. And it's important for us to keep our eyes on the things above and what's going on in the world today. And we can see that all these pieces of the puzzle coming together, I think, more rapidly than ever before. So Asaph writes this psalm that is very interesting. Let's begin to look at it as it is a psalm of Asaph. And he writes in verse 1. We're going to read it, and then we're going to look at it, and then we're going to give the implications of it. And he writes in verse 1, Do not keep silent, O God. Do not hold your peace, and do not be still, O God. For behold, your enemies make a tumult, and those who hate you have lifted up their heads. In verse 3, they have taken crafty counsel against your people and consulted together against your sheltered ones. And they have said, Come and let us cut them off from being a nation, that the name of Israel may be remembered no more. For they have consulted together with one consent to form a confederacy against you. Verse 6, the tents of Edom and Ishmaelites, Moab and Hagrites, Gabal and Ammon and Amalek, Philistia with the inhabitants of Tyre, and Assyria, verse 8, has also joined with them, and they have helped the children of Lot. And then there's a pause at meditation. In verse 9, deal with them as Midian, as with Sisera and with Jabin, or Jabin at the brook Kishon, who perished at Endor, who became as refuge on the earth, and make the nobles of Oreb and like Zeb, yes, all their princes like Zeba and Zalmunna, who have said, let us take for ourselves the pastures of God for possession. In verse 13, O oh my God, make them like the whirling dust, like the chaff before the wind as the fire burns the woods. And as the flame sets the mountains on fire, so pursue them with your tempest and frighten them with your storm and fill their face with shame that they may seek your name, O Lord. Let them be confounded and dismayed forever. Yes, let them be put to shame and perish that they may know that you, whose name alone is the Lord, are the most high over all the earth. So the psalmist Asaph here, he begins this psalm in verses 1 through 4 as he begins to cry out to the Lord. He's saying, Lord, uh, there's this confederation of nations that are coming together that hate us. They've taken crafty counsel against your people. And in verse 2, they hate you. They've lifted up their heads. In other words, they have exalted themselves. It's literally what it means in the Hebrew. It means that they have uh, uproar. They're, they're, they're uh, exalted. They're they're. You know, you can see them just, you know, in an uproar. They're, they're gathering together. They're getting all worked up. And we're going to go and consult together with these other nations. And they're going to try to cut us off from being a nation that the name of Israel will be remembered no more. One of the things that we know is we read the historical account of Israel in the Old Testament. We know that there have always been those who have hated Israel and come against Israel and desired to destroy them. You see it all through the book of Judges and, and through the wars that David fought and also through First and Second Kings uh, after you know, David's reign and after Solomon's reign. When the nation was split and then you see the Assyrians taking the ten northern tribe uh, of Israel off into captivity, and then later on, the southern tribe of Judah, the house of Judah, would go off into captivity by the Babylonians. So all through their history, they have been taken off into captivity. They've had those nations come together to come against them, and Asaph is writing about a time that this is happening once again. One of the things that we're going to talk about here when we give the implication of this is that the Bible talks about when they become a nation once again after the captivity, which they did in 1948, that the same thing would happen, that they would be isolated. So that's why there are those who are looking at this are saying, hmm, perhaps that this has prophetic implications, but let's continue to look at this as they take crafty counsel against your people. They want to destroy Israel, in verse 5, in coming with one consent. And then he begins, Asaph, to name ten specific nations. There are ten groups of people that are here. He starts with the tents of Edom. Now, the Edomites, who were the Edomites? Were They were the descendants, uh, as we know, of 
of um, Esau. So the Edomites lived in that area today, which is Jordan, just kind of east and south of the Dead Sea today. The Edomites were in that area. And what is interesting is, is here it says the tents of Edom. So scholars have looked at this and kind of scratched their heads and said, what does it mean, the tents of Edom? Tents usually in the Old Testament speaks about not having a permanent home. So could it be? Perhaps. We'll talk about it in a minute. So the tents of Edom coming against Israel. The Ishmaelites, the Ishmaels, the descendants of Ishmael, of course, the, the son of Abraham and Hagar, the father of the Arab people. We have Moab, and uh, Moab, of course, and Ammon in verse 7 that is spoken of here, that it is uh, them that are the descendants of uh, that incestuous relationship that in Genesis chapter 19 talks about that Lot had with his daughters. They lived in that area, just east of the Jordan River, which today is Jordan. And then you have uh, Gabal that is mentioned here. That's up in the area of Lebanon. And then Amalek. Amalek. Who are the Amalekites? Well, you remember from your study in 1 Samuel uh, chapter 15 that Saul was told to destroy all the Amalekites for what they've done to the children of Israel. So you read about the Amalekites clear back in the wilderness wandering when the children of Israel were in the wilderness in Moses and Joshua, they did battle with the Amalekites. And it was at that time that Joshua would hold his hands up in prayer and prevailing prayer. And there was her and there was um, and, uh, Aaron that were holding his hands up. And as long as his hands were up, they were beating the Amalekites. But the Amalekites were the ones that would attack the children of Israel, attack the rear, the rear you know, ranks of them as they were going through uh, the wilderness. And, and they did terrible things to the children of Israel. So later on, that it was Saul that was told, the first king of Israel, to destroy the Amalekites. So they lived in that area, which today is the West Bank in that area. Um, then you have Philistia, uh, the Philistines that are mentioned oftentimes that David did battle with. And Philistia is in that area today called the Gaza Strip. Now, the Gaza Strip has been in the news a lot lately. In the last war that Israel fought, was less than two years ago with Gaza, the missiles coming out of Gaza, and Israel having to deal with that. And so that was just recently. So that's where Philistia is. And Tyre, that's in Lebanon, and that's in that area, which is today controlled by a group, a terrorist group called Hezbollah. Perhaps you have heard of them in the news. Hezbollah, that is believed to have 100,000 missiles right now as we speak, that are aimed at Israel. And Israel has gone through the, uh, the first Lebanon war and the second Lebanon war that was in the 90s that involved Hezbollah shooting missiles into this, you know, cities of Israel in northern Israel. Now it's believed that they got missiles that will go clear down into Tel Aviv and possibly Jerusalem. Then it's interesting, you have here Assyria that is listed, and we've talked about Assyria. They're the ones that were the powerhouse back in uh, the time of uh, 700 to, to 750 B.C. as they flexed their muscles and took the ten northern tribes off into captivity. But then in 705 B.C., they surrounded Jerusalem, and an angel came and destroyed 185,000 Assyrian soldiers. So here is speaking about Assyria, and what is interesting, that they've helped the children of Lot. So it's speaking of Ammon, it's speaking of Moab, it's speaking of that country today, which is called Jordan. So you have all these names that are mentioned, Hagrites, that are in uh, that area of Syria is the Hagrites. And, and so all those countries that surround the border of Israel, and this is what makes it interesting as we look at this, uh, at this prophecy uh, that it could be, or the lament of, of Asaph here. He's crying out these ten groups of people uh, that a huge con Confederate uh, army is, is coming against us as they uh, consulted together to wipe us out. And he's crying out to the Lord. And then he asked the Lord to deal with them in verse 9, deal with them as with Midian, with Sisera, and with Jabin at the brook Hishon, who perished at Endor. So Judges chapter 4, 
You know the story that it was the Canaanites that would have the children of Israel uh, at that time who were rebelling against the Lord, the children of Israel. So they were being held in you know, bondage to the Canaanites. And for 20 years, the Canaanites ruled over them. And we know that as you read the story in Judges chapter 4, that it was Sisera who was the commander of the Canaanites. He had 900 chariots. Now, you might think that's not such a big deal. But you got to remember back in ancient times, a, a chariot was as good as having a tank, you know. And the children of Israel didn't have anything like that. So it's like they had 900 you know, chariots. They had this massive army. And uh, Jabin, who's mentioned here, was the king of the Canaanites. And in Judges chapter 4, you read about how Deborah, she was the leader of Israel, the judge at that time, and God raised her up. And she got Barak, and Barak gathered uh, the armies together of Israel. And, and they had, you know, a fairly small army, and they won against the Canaanites, and they won a great victory as it was uh, Sisera that ended up being killed, and the, the Canaanites um, were routed, and uh, the 900 chariots were done away with and and Jabin was killed as well so what the psalmist is writing about is you deal with this huge army that's coming against us that wants to destroy us like you did back in Judges chapter 4 with Deborah and Barak against the Canaanites and then deal with them verse 9 is Midian and then verse 11 make their nobles like Oreb and like Zeb and and their princes like Zebah and Salmuna uh, as you read that, those were the leaders of the Midianites that you read about with Gideon in Judges chapter 6 through 8. And you know the story of Gideon. We've talked about it before in our lessons that Gideon raised up 300 men to go against 135,000 Midianites. And they went to war. And God uh, would cause the Midianites to turn on each other and, and uh, kill each other, and they were confused. But they routed the Midianites to where they were no longer a problem after that. The Canaanites, wipe them out like you did the Midianites in, in Judges chapter 6 through 8 and also in Judges chapter 4 with the Canaanites. Lord, you can do that. And then in verses 13, as through 18 because they do want to take for themselves a pastors of God for a possession. They want to take the land. They want to, to make the nation of Israel remember no more, that you make them like a whirling dust, like chaff before the wind, as the fire burns in the woods and as flames set the mountains on fire. That's talking about, you know, some very serious stuff here. Pursue them with your tempest, frighten them, Make their faces, uh, fill their faces with shame, that they may seek your name, O Lord. And I find verses 16 through 18 to be very interesting because it says that they may seek your name, O Lord. Let them be confounded and dismayed forever. Yes, let them be put to shame and perish, that they may know that you, whose name alone is the Lord, are the most high over all the earth. In other words, may you be glorified in this utter destruction of these armies but may they also know that you alone are the Lord. Now, very interesting. So what are the implications for you and for me tonight? What are the different interpretations? And again, they're all over the board. And you'll read some very good Bible scholars and interpreters that will say it is this, and others that say, no, there is prophetic implication in it. So I'm going to kind of throw it all out there for you to do your own study. But number one one of the interpretations of Psalm 83 is, is that this was fulfilled in Second Chronicles chapter 20. That a descendant of Asaph is writing this when Jehoshaphat was ruling. And when Jehoshaphat ruled, uh, there in Second Chronicles chapter 20, you read that Ammon and Moab and Mount Seir, that they came uh, against Israel with this great multitude. It includes others. We don't know what the others are. So here we see that 10 nations are specifically mentioned. So some scholars say that what Asaph is doing, or this ascendant of Asaph writing here, is he's just filling in the blanks that Second Chronicles chapter 20 doesn't give to us. But Jehoshaphat was very much frightened. And the people of Judah went to the Lord and they prayed, and the Lord gave them a great victory. 
So there are those who say that this is just a fulfillment of 2 Chronicles chapter 20. Those who disagree with it say, well, you can't really say that because those other nations are not mentioned. We do know that there are others that came with Ammon and with Moab that are mentioned here that were beyond the sea, as Second Chronicles chapter 20 tells us. Who exactly they were, we don't know. And one of the things that I know about Bible prophecy is this, is that every dot and tittle is going to be fulfilled. And when it comes to Bible prophecy, Bible prophecy is very specific. It isn't real general. And so we can look at, for example, the prophecies that were given in the Old Testament concerning the birth and life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. There were very specific prophecies that were given, right? Where Jesus would be born, about his ministry, about his death, his resurrection, very specific prophecies that were fulfilled to the letter in detail by Jesus. And so it shows us it was by no accident that Jesus, you know, the true Son of God, the one who came along and fulfilled those prophecies, as you go to the New Testament, Matthew writes to show that Jesus is the King of Kings, and you see a lot of prophecies of the Old Testament that Jesus fulfilled that are written there because it was written for the Jewish audience. Hey, you know what? Jesus did come. He fulfilled all those prophecies. It was by no accident. So we can be confident if he fulfilled every dot and tittle of those prophecies concerning his first coming, we can be confident that he's going to fulfill every dot and tittle concerning his second coming. So that's the thing to remember, that the Bible is very specific when it comes to prophecy. And that's what makes it to where you can study and study and study it and look at it and, and begin to try to put all the pieces of that puzzle together that I've talked about. So the Second Chronicles chapter 20, leave out these nations here. Was it fulfilled? There are some that say, yes, it was fulfilled in Jehoshaphat's time. Number two, the second interpretation. There are those very, very uh, much that say that this is nothing more than a lament. That this is a national lament that you find in the book of Psalms. And the reason that they say that is because it includes, as most of the laments that you read in the Psalms, it includes an initial cry to God, verse 1 that we read here. Second of all, that it is a lament to God, crying out to Him. That, you know, we got big problems here, Lord, and, and that is in verses 2 through 8 this confederation of nations coming together. Thirdly, you see a pattern of the national laments in Psalms that includes confidence in God dealing with them. That's what you see in verses 9 through 12. It's also considered uh, what we already talked about, a precatory prayer. David had a precatory prayers, didn't he? Lord, knock out their teeth. Lord, deal with the enemy that's coming against me. So that's what an imprecatory psalm is, and this includes that. And that's what a national lament in the psalms would have. And then the fourth thing, a request to God, and that's what you see here. So it fits that pattern of a lament. And what is missing here, those who say that this has no prophetic implication, is that there's no response by God. For example, there's no, thus says the Lord. And they say, thus it isn't a prophecy. And the scholars also note that Psalms were written long before the prophets began to write about Gentile nations. Now, that's not totally true. Because we know that there are messianic Psalms that are prophetic, aren't they? They're very prophetic, talking about how God, Jesus is going to come, and he's going to rule and reign, set up the kingdom of God. And he is going to rule over the earth and over all the nations, and that includes the Gentile nations. And in Psalm chapter 2, one of the, the messianic psalms that we talked about is the psalmist writes, Who has plotted a vain thing against the Lord, the nations of the world, wanting to fight against the Lord when he comes back? And he's going to rule with the rod of iron. So the Gentile nations are mentioned, uh, not specifically, but in the messianic prophecies. So... The argument is that those who say this is just a lament say that those prophecies concerning these nations that are mentioned here, you find later on in the books of the prophet, in Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Isaiah, Amos, and some of the others. 
So the read into the text about a future war is really, uh, really too much. It's reading too much into the text. Not to say that Israel has always and always will be surrounded by enemies. And in the future, God is going to deal with them. And it seems to indicate, when you look at the prophetic scenario, that God is going to deal with them right before the second coming of Jesus Christ. So it's nothing more than a lament. Maybe perhaps during David's reign, as he went to war, expressing why does everyone hate us. That's the second interpretation of Psalm 83. Thirdly, some say that this is prophetic and that it has been fulfilled in our lifetime in the 1948 war, in the Six-Day War, in the Yom Kippur War, that it has been fulfilled in the Arab-Israeli wars that have happened since Israel has become a nation in 1948, when they became a nation, those nations that surrounded Israel, Lebanon, Syria, Jordan, Saudi Arabia, Egypt, joined in by Morocco and Iraq and, and uh, some of the others, uh, Iran, that they had troops that came in to, uh, to join that confederation to destroy Israel. And Israel faced overwhelming odds. Israel, a day old, was attacked by all those nations. And so some say this was fulfilled in 1948. It's very fascinating to look at those wars of 1948 and the Six-Day War and the Yom Kippur War. And Israel did face overwhelming odds. You know, when the Jews came back into the land, uh, the people were wondering, Lord, have you forsaken us? And as they were a nation, here they were being attacked again. This is 1948. This is fresh right off the, after the Holocaust. Can you imagine what they're thinking? And when God delivered them and they had victory, then they began to think, hmm, God has brought us back into the land. Maybe God is working. So there are those who will come along and they will say that this was fulfilled in those wars of 1948 and the Six-Day War and the Yom Kippur War, which we've talked about before in our prophecy studies. And again, God said that when he would plant them in the land, that they are going to stay there. So Israel winning those wars. Number four, the fourth implication, interpretation. Some suggest that it's linked to a future war. And oftentimes, they'll link it to Ezekiel 38, the war of Gog and Magog. They're beginning to link it to Isaiah chapter 17. Now, on New Year's Eve, what we're going to do is we're going to talk more specifically about Ezekiel 38, Isaiah chapter 17, which is a prophecy that Isaiah gave that Damascus is going to be a ruinous heap, that it's going to be a city that's uninhabitable. And many believe that that prophecy has not been fulfilled. I'm one that believes that it hasn't been fulfilled. There are some that will come along and say, well, Damascus, that was fulfilled when the Assyrians came into Damascus. Well, they didn't destroy Damascus. They took over Damascus. There was a lot of damage. But in the 70s, and in, in, uh, J.D. here, you went to Syria in the 70s, uh, to Damascus. They actually had people that used to go there. And, and tour Syria. And um, they used to boast in their little brochures that they're the oldest continuous city in the whole world, 4,000 years old. So they've never come to the point where they have been destroyed, where they're uninhabitable. So the events that are happening today, we don't know what the final outcome is going to be, but we are seeing, again, this alliance that Ezekiel 38 talks about that, again, we don't have time to go into tonight. We'll talk more about it on New Year's Eve. But in Ezekiel 38, we know that there's going to be a confederation of nations spoken, Gog and Magog, pointing to Russia, Persia, which is Iran, and we have Turkey that's mentioned, Kush, uh, Sudan, Ethiopia, those nations on the outskirts there in the Middle East that are going to come together. God's going to put a hook in their jaw and bring them from the north into Israel and then is going to destroy those armies. What makes that prophecy so fascinating that we've been looking at and watching? 
Who's in Syria right now building mil military bases? The Russians are. And we also know that this morning in Israel, which is now, they're nine hours ahead of us, they are waking up to the news in the Jerusalem Post that the Iranians are funneling in illegally weapons into Syria by the Russians. This is getting really interesting. And the Russians are there. They've had the largest military buildup since 1941 that has taken place even as we speak. So we don't know how this you know, campaign is going to end, but we see the alliances coming together. One of the things as we look at Ezekiel chapter 38 that you know, Bible scholars have kind of scratched their heads about a little bit is that you see that Iran is mentioned, Persia. Matter of fact, Iran was called Persia until 1935. Did you know that? That Gog made Gog. There is Russia. There is Turkey. There is um, Northern Africa. Those nations that are going to come in to Israel, try to destroy Israel, try to take the spoils, try to take the booty, as the King James says. What is that? Is that a time when Israel is secure, dwelling safely without walls around its city. It's like Ezekiel is looking 2,500 years into the future because the ancient cities all had walls around them. And in Ezekiel's day, to read that, unwalled villages, what does that mean? Well, they don't make walls today around their cities, but they do dwell securely because they have a strong military. And in that time, for some reason, well, God's going to put a hook in their jaw, they're going to come after the booty, after the spoils. We don't know what that is. It is interesting that just two weeks ago, up in the Golan Heights, northern Israel, guess what they found? A very large reserve of oil that's in the rock there that can make Israel very independent, as well as we know that a couple years ago they found a large natural gas uh, reserve out there off the shores of northern Israel. So is that part of the spoils, part of the booty? We don't know. But some have wondered, why isn't, if that confederation of nations are going to come against Israel, why wouldn't you have Hezbollah? Why wouldn't you have the West Bank, Gaza? Why wouldn't you have Syria? Why wouldn't you have those nations that are so hostile to Israel why aren't they mentioned in Ezekiel chapter 38? There are Bible scholars that are saying that Psalm 83 gives us the answer. That perhaps this is a part of Ezekiel chapter 38 that they're going to join in as well. Or this could be a prelude to Ezekiel chapter 38. That whatever's happening in Syria that perhaps is going to lead to Lebanon, Hezbollah, uh, the Gaza, uh, the West Bank. And that's why I was saying the tents of Edom. Tents means not a permanent home. Could this be a reference to the refugees that is being spoken about in the West Bank? That there in Jordan, that, that uh, those nations around somehow are going to come together and they're going to be a part of Ezekiel 38 or maybe a prelude. And then the outer nations, Iran and Russia, are going to come in with a major battle. We don't know how it's all going to work, but every dot and tittle is going to be fulfilled in the scriptures. So it's interesting to look at it. One of the reasons why I'm not so sure that this was fulfilled in the Six-Day War or 1948 War is because of verses 16 through 18 that I read to you that they may seek your name, O Lord. Let them be confounded and dismayed forever. Let them be put to shame and perish that they may know whose, that you, whose name alone is the Lord, are the most high over all the earth. We know that it talks about that they may be done away with that, um, that their faces and, and may they be, verse 17, dismayed forever. Let them be confounded, dismayed forever. That hasn't happened those nations still want to destroy Israel. One of the interesting things that we know about Ezekiel 38 and 39 is that we see the same terminology that is used. Ezekiel uses it throughout his book, that they may know that I am the Lord. Same thing here in Psalm 83, that they may know 
that you are the Lord, that you may be glorified. It is very possible that Ezekiel 38, we don't know the timing of it, or Psalm 83, if it is prophetic, if it's a part of that, that there are those who are saying that perhaps there's going to be a great revival among the Muslims as Israel is going to defeat them, those nations, those Arab-Muslim nations, by the hand of God, and they're going to recognize that he truly is the Lord. So it's fascinating to look at that and see the possibilities and the implications of what is being talked about. Fifth thing, and then we're going to close with this, but this is very important. Whether you see it as a lament or whether you see it as being fulfilled in the wars, Israeli-Arab wars that have happened since 1948, or whether you see it as a future, uh, you know, prophetic scenario that might go along with Ezekiel 38, here's one thing that all of us can agree with, that this is the attitude of the nations towards Israel. We need to understand that. That Israel is going to be more and more isolated by the nations. That is very clear in the scriptures. To where Zechariah says that they will become a cup of trembling. And one of the things that we need to understand as Christians as well, because this is a concern of mine, is that God has a plan for Israel in the last days. He has a plan for Israel to fulfill his promises for the restoration of Israel and his promise that the day is going to come when their eyes are going to be open. As Paul writes about in Romans chapter 11, blindness has come to them in part, not totally. Some Jews have come to Jesus to recognize that he is Lord and Savior, their Messiah, our Messiah. But it, blindness has come in part to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles is fulfilled. And Paul says then in that day, after Ezekiel 38 and 39, the end of Ezekiel 39 says that God will pour out his spirit on the house of Israel. And their eyes are going to be opened up. Now, sometimes people will say to you and to me, well, if you believe that Israel is still God's chosen people, then you have a replacement gospel. We don't have a replacement gospel. Listen, there's one way to heaven. That's through Jesus Christ. That's for Jew and Gentile, right? So we believe in that. But the day is going to come when their eyes are going to be opened up and they're going to realize that Jesus is their Messiah. That's a prerequisite of the second coming of Jesus Christ. And that's the promise that we see given for the restoration of Israel all throughout the scriptures. And the reason that I'm pressing this point is because there are those that will come to you and to me and say, well, God is through with Israel. And the promises have been forfeited by God to Israel now, the church is spiritual Israel. The problem is the Bible doesn't say that anywhere. And God says, I will bring this to pass. In Luke's gospel, Jesus was talking about the time that the Romans would come in in 70 AD and destroy Jerusalem and the temple. And he says that they will fall by the edge of the sword and be led away captive to all the nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled by Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Again, we can talk about this in detail, but some believe that perhaps the time of the Gentiles till it's fulfilled, that that happened in 1967 when Israel, the IDF forces, took over Jerusalem and East Jerusalem where the Temple Mount was. And for the first time really in 2,500 years that Jerusalem was under the sovereign rule of the Jews of Israel. So that has happened. There are some that say, no, that's not the full fulfillment. But again, we can look at that in another time. So Jesus said that you're going to go off into captivity. Jerusalem's going to be destroyed. But also when he was lamenting over Jerusalem, as he said, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, as he was lamenting over them for not receiving him. And, and it's interesting to, to read that in Luke chapter uh, 13, as he says that the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her, how often I want to gather your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, but you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate, and as surely I say to you that you shall see me no more until the time comes when you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This is after the triumphal entry. Jesus himself said there's going to be a time where you're going to receive me and recognize me and say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. 
listen, the prophecies of the Old Testament say that they're going to go off into captivity and that they, God would bring them back into the land. Somebody asked me on the radio yesterday on Calvary Live, is Ezekiel 37, has that been fulfilled? I said, yes. The ultimate fulfillment will come in a millennium reign, but it has been fulfilled in that the dry bones, the vision of dry bones coming together, and then all of a sudden there's this, uh, this multitude of people that God breathes life into them. It speaks about a nation that was dead that has become alive. In Ezekiel 36, the land blossoming as they come in and the technology and the research and the agricultural practices and what they've done is absolutely amazing just as the prophets predicted. And then Amos ends his book by saying that when they come into the land and rebuild their cities, that they will not be plucked out again. Listen, God has a plan and a purpose for them. But what concerns me is that a lot of the mainline denominations and even in evangelical Christianity, there are those that are holding to the replacement theology that God is through with them. And that does a whole lot in how they interpret the Bible and how they teach about end times. And that's one of the reasons why they don't like to talk about the end time scenario. Because Israel is going to go through the fire in the tribulation period. And if we're spiritual Israel, who wants to talk about that? So know this, that God has a plan and a purpose for the church. I believe that we'll be raptured before the tribulation period, just as the promise is given in, in Revelation chapter 3, that Jesus said to the church of Philadelphia, I will keep you out of and away from the hour of tribulation that will come upon the whole earth to test those who dwell on the earth. He's going to take us out of and away from the hour of tribulation. And then there's going to be seven years of tribulation to where God's going to eventually pour out his spirit on the nation of Israel. And that we know that at the end of the tribulation period, that the nations of the world will gather in what is the final world war. And that is the battle of Armageddon. And it's during that time that Jesus will come back in the second coming of Jesus Christ. And he will touch down the Mount of Olives. And as Zechariah says, the mountain will heave in half. And we're going to come back with him. Where does Ezekiel 38, 39 fit into? Where does Psalm 83 fit into? It's in the last days. If this is prophetic, which it very well could be, you might be thinking, well, what do you think, Pastor Jeff? Depends what day it is. <laughs> it reads like a lament. But I do have to admit it reads like a prophecy, and I find it very interesting. So is this going to be a part of Ezekiel 38, 39? We don't know. But we know that it's going to happen, Ezekiel 38 and 39. Whether Psalm 83 is a part of that, a prelude to it. We are living in very interesting days, folks. And we're seeing those alliances that are coming together. And I want you to be able to talk to people when they see this coming along you know, there's, there's what I understand, a debate down the road here. And there's going to be questions about foreign policy and what's going on in Syria and all these other things. It's more in a geopolitical solution and dimension to it. There's a spiritual dimension to it. Israel's going to be isolated. Why? By all the nations. And the reason is, is because God's going to bring him to the point of that you're going to trust in me and see that I am real and that I'm going to be faithful to bring my promises to pass. You know what really bothers me about the replacement theology? That it believes that, you know, God will break his promises to Israel that he gave, that you can read all throughout the Old Testament. And you see, that would concern me. Because God keeps his promises. And people say, well, Israel messed up. Yes, they did. They're rebellious. Yes, they did. But God's going to bring them to the place that he promised that he would. And you and I, there have been seasons where I haven't been what I should be or could be. And I am very thankful for the faithfulness of God in my life and that his promises are true. And he doesn't say, I'm through with you. And my promises are forfeited to you. 
but being confident of this very thing that he who has begun a good work in you, in me, will bring it to completion, especially in the day of Christ Jesus. And you and I have the opportunity in the days in which we're living in, the birth pangs, contractions are coming faster, more intense. And there's a lot that we're going to talk about on New Year's Eve as we're going to talk about Isaiah 17 and Jeremiah chapter 49, and we're going to kind of put it all together. And we're seeing the scenario begin to come together. When is it going to happen? I don't know. But I'll tell you this, and I'll end with this. Jesus said, when you begin to see these things come to pass, what? Look up and rejoice, for your redemption draws near. And if we're that close to Ezekiel 38, of that war Gog and Magog that's beginning to form, perhaps, is, is this what it's going to lead to? Again, we don't know for sure, but it is going to happen in the last days. How close are we to the rapture of the church? that the Lord can come for us. Again, I don't know when, but it causes me every day to be looking to him and to proclaim a message of hope to the world that Jesus Christ, that he loves you and died for you and that he wants to forgive you. And if there's anybody here tonight, even if you're listening on live stream or out in a coffee shop or here, you're not, not right with God. Get right with God and give your life to him. And then let's live for him, all right? Because the time is short, and the Lord's coming back, and you and I get to be a messenger of hope to people that are wondering what's going on in this mixed-up, crazy world. I'll tell you what's going on. The Lord is working, and it's all going to culminate into Him establishing His kingdom. And it's so wonderful, the future that we have, and you can be a part of it. So, Father, we thank you. We thank you for this, this psalm that we went over to get us thinking, Lord, and and, Lord, we know that every dot and tittle of prophecy is going to be fulfilled. And, Lord, we know that we are in the last days. The budding of the fig tree. Your people back into the land. Building the cities. Planting the vineyards. That, Lord, you're working and protecting them. And you have a plan for them. But, Lord, you have a plan for us. For us individually. And we know that you're going to be faithful to come back, your son, and establish his kingdom here on this earth. And we get to be a part of that. So I pray that we would be sober and we would be vigilant as Christians, not going to sleep spiritually, but to be watching and waiting as we're commanded. For he comes at a time that we do not expect that we least expect is what the scripture says. It could be a day like today or tomorrow. We don't know when. But we're to be watching and to occupy till you come. That is being a witness. That is being an ambassador for you, giving a message of hope that is found in Jesus Christ. And Father, I just want to take a moment, if there is anyone that is here, that you're here and you don't know if you have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Maybe all this is new and it just went over your head. I do want to say this, that Jesus loves you, that he died for your sins and he desires to have relationship with you, for you to come and be forgiven of your sins and have the hope of, of heaven and know that you have right relationship with the Father that only comes through Jesus. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. No one else died for you and rose from the grave. There's no other sacrifice for sin. He is Lord of all. He is Savior of all. Of those who come and surrender your, their lives to him. And if you've never done that, I want to give you opportunity tonight to do that right where you're sitting today's the day of salvation because really we talk about the return of the lord but the lord can come for us at any time personally individually tomorrow isn't promised to any of us in other words so come tonight if you've never done that if you're not sure and you cry out to the lord right now with all of your heart, and you pray, Jesus, I come to you, a sinner, and I ask that you would forgive me of my sins. 
I believe that you died for me on that cross and you were put into a grave in your life today. And I ask that you would sit upon the throne of my life as my personal Lord and Savior. I surrender my life to you. And I thank you for hearing my prayer. And I thank you for saving me and forgiving me. And help me now to live for you all the days of my life. In Jesus' name.